This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattled bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Today we have with us Dr. Bryce Edwards of the Democracy Project, and we'll be talking about uh, conflict of interest in politics and public, uh, other public offices. He's part of the Democracy Project that's, that is housed at Victoria University and to encourage public life and critical thinking and debate. You can get this uh, podcast by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to community or chaos. Good morning, um, Bryce. The era of complacency over conflict of interest from our politicians seems to be well and truly over. Why were we complacent in the first place? Uh, good morning, Kiora Marvin. Uh, yes, I, I believe in New Zealand uh, we've been very complacent about issues of integrity in politics, about uh, the potential for corruption, dodgy dealing uh, behind the scenes, largely because we believe the hype that uh, that New Zealand politics is is clean and that we're the best in the world. There's sort of an element of nationalism, I think, little little New Zealand nationalism going on where we think we're better than all these other countries um, like the developing world or even uh, Western countries like Britain or France. Um, we feel that our politicians might be wrong in lots of ways but that they're not uh they're not bent they're not corrupt um that they're clean and part of this is because of course every year uh the the global watchdog on um, integrity and corruption transparency international put out their uh corruption perception index and this tries to aggregate lots of data and surveys to give an idea of around the world which countries are more susceptible to corruption. New Zealand always comes at, I guess, the bottom of the list, as in the least, um, one of the least corrupt countries. It's been number one in a number of those surveys. And they're not saying that there's no corruption in New Zealand. They're saying that we're better than other countries. And I think we can argue about whether that's the case or not, but it certainly, I think, has added to that complacency that there's nothing to see here, there's no problem. Um, and so we therefore don't take seriously some of these integrity deficits when they occur. When they measure corruption, this commission, they're probably thinking of more direct corruption like money changing hands, which happens a lot in uh, yeah. many countries. And that, that form of corruption doesn't seem to happen very often in New Zealand. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Marvin. Um, the more overt, you know, very obvious forms of corruption um, aren't so clearly happening in New Zealand. Uh, I think it's probably um, things are a bit more sophisticated and uh, uh, less blatant in New Zealand. You're right um, uh, about that. But even so... It's more like do donations and... We do have donations um, made from a lot of wealthy people to our political parties, and they're quite large figures, and they do comes with they do come with strings attached, and um, we don't have a lot of okay. regulation about it, and there's lots of other ex situations where um, 
New Zealand governments uh, of all different stripes, different, uh, you know, Labour or National, whatever, have done lots of uh, pieces of legislation um, and made decisions that aren't in the public interest, in my view, but are to deal with uh, powerful and and wealthy people and make them happy. So th those also fall into uh, what I would say is an <laughs> integrity deficit. The um, person who brought this t to light was uh, MP Stuart Nash, who was actually a member of cabinet. Can you talk about this and can you talk about the report that was made afterward? Sure, uh, but I just mentioned before I get into that, that you know, Marvin, you and I know, you know that this goes way back. Stuart Nash is the latest, and Michael Wood are the latest examples of this. But, you know, you and I were following politics closely in the 1980s when the fourth Labour government was in power, and they were receiving all sorts of huge donations from business. And I believe it did have an impact on those neoliberal policies of the 1980s. Um, and that was, I think the first time that we started to have a wake-up call about I, the influence of of uh, wealth and influence on the public policy settings. And since then, there's been lots of other examples, but it seems to be arising again. And so, yes, you're right. Stuart Nash was the big one um, okay. let's the go, last few Let's months. go back to the 1980s for a second okay, yeah, since sure. you brought that up. It seems to me that if one looked at who became CEOs of uh, standalone enterprises that were uh, created and, and also uh, enterprises that were privatized that had been public, which yeah. itself is uh, in my book, since there was no referendum on it, and it certainly yeah. wasn't by the wish of the people, might have been a corrupt, whole corrupt um, episode in our history. But yeah. many of the people who became CEOs of both these private companies and also the... Um, SOEs, state-owned enterprises. Uh, they came from places like Treasury and other, and the public service, and sometimes from the, those things I know about. I can't remember if any politicians actually, I think, be, got that happened to. For instance, Ken Douglas, who uh, was head of the, the union movement and actually prevented a general strike because uh, became yeah. uh, head of the, one of the banks. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, yeah, we've got lots of overlapping networks of influential people, and often they involve business, but you're quite right that sometimes they involve even the union movement and people from, yeah, what we might regard as the, the left side of politics. I mean, someone that's in the news a lot at the moment is, is Rob Cameron, uh, sorry, Rob Campbell, and you know he was in the union movement and the Labour Party, and he was initially you know kind of aligned with people like Jim Anderson and you know and yourself. And but then he switched sides, and he went with the Roger Gnomes, and uh, he got appointed to all sorts of things. He became a corporate director. Eventually, he ended up running um, Sky City, you know, casinos and. He's recently been appointed to lots of other boards. So there's just so many networks of influence. And in New Zealand, we don't have a lot of scrutiny of these things. Um, and especially back in the 1980s, things moved so fast um, under Rogernomics that, yes, you're quite right. Pe people from the bureaucracy were appointed to these state-owned enterprises, uh, appointed to all sorts of and government agencies. Instead of making and thousands of dollars a year, they were making millions of dollars a year. Yeah, that, that's right. And so, um, you know, these things didn't get enough scrutiny, and that's partly why these reformers were able to be implemented, because they bought people off, and then they... Um, they co-opted people that might otherwise have been opponents and got them into good jobs and got them into appointments. And it also meant that a lot of those reforms were able to stay in place because all the opposition was wiped away. And um, so, yeah, I, I, it was a pretty dark time in New Zealand's political history, in my view. Um, and we're still sort of dealing with the consequences today and we still haven't cleaned up politics. We still haven't dealt with the influence of, of um, 
both private wealth but also the state's ability to uh, to use patronage to appoint people and to um, to use its own um, money to subsidize lots of things so even though you know we've kind of had these neoliberal reforms which supposedly are about making the state smaller um, you know reducing expenditure we've ended up having the state actually subsidize a lot of the private sector okay. and so for example you know recently we're seeing the the subsidies for film companies subsidies for gaming companies um, and there's just so many of these things that that are corporate um, welfare essentially and the biggest one in my view has been during covid with the wage subsidy scheme when we had 20 billion dollars that were given to employers no question asked and you know it had it had a good reason um marvin it, you know there was good intentions behind it all but it was so shoddily um produced that wage subsidy scheme that it meant that businesses that weren't um that turned out to be very profitable had no trouble took um huge amounts of money and never had to pay it back and uh it's been calculated that $10 billion of the wage subsidy scheme should have been paid back by profitable businesses, but never was. Okay. So that's the general theme of where we are. Can you talk about the case study of Stuart Nash and the yeah. and the scrutiny that happened afterward? Okay. Well, Stuart Nash obviously um, has been in the Labour Party for a long time. He's sort of seen as being on the, the right side, as in the political right of the, the Labour Party, a bit more conservative than other MPs. Um, and of course, he's um, he, he's always been close to, uh, yeah, business people, and he's been good at raising donations for, uh, for the Labour Party for his own campaigns um, from business people. He had a background in forestry, and he's um, then became forestry uh, minister of forestry, um, and he oversaw a lot of the regulation, or should we say, lack of regulation of the forestry industry. And I, I guess there was a lot of cynicism or skepticism about whether he gave forestry uh, a really easy run. Those private um, forestry and milling companies. Well, if you were one of those forestry workers who died because there wasn't enough regulation for accidents, exactly. You would and then we have the issue of the um, the, the so-called slash, all the um, byproducts of all the um, the clear felling of forests and um, land, environmentally sensitive areas where. Um, basically all the roots and branches and um, stumps um, you know ended up flooding down and um, creating huge environmental destruction and that wasn't regulated and um, you know it's been a a, a huge disaster uh, as we've seen earlier in this year with the flooding and so Stuart Nash has been the one overlooking this overseeing this and of course, he takes uh, donations, or he's been taking donations from the forestry industry, um, from the uh, milling industry, and um, I think that's raised lots of questions about him. But then, of course, um, we had the situation where he was found to have been supplying um, sensitive cabinet information um, to his donors, and that's really where his downfall occurred. Um, and so th that was leaked out, that he'd been supplying that information um, to his donors, and that breached the cabinet manual. So there was an investigation by the, the cabinet office. So the cabinet office are those in the beehive, essentially, that help the ministers and the prime minister run their government and tell them the rules and make sure everything's going correctly. And so the cabinet office, um, the, the secretary, um, Rachel... Uh, Hayward ran an investigation into what had happened and um, this was mainly to find out whether he had um, supplied other or broken other rules in dealing with his donors and she found that yes there were uh, there was at least one other example where um, uh, he had um, broken the rules she said they weren't a major or significant breaking of rules but nonetheless a breaking of rules but I, th I think 
the most concerning part for my for me in her investigation was that she found that Stuart Nash had been deleting his text messages to his donors and she didn't have the power to investigate further. So she just had to accept that and she wasn't able to um, to, to go and recover those messages or anything. And so she couldn't investigate what she couldn't uh, look at on his text messages because they were gone. And so I, I thought that was kind of disturbing. Um, I mean, you might remember, Marvin, there was a lot of heat um, on Hillary Clinton when she had um, you know used private email servers in the States. Um, this was something similar, really. Um, uh, Stuart Nash had been using WhatsApp and Gmail for his messages and he'd been deleting stuff. But really, there's been no great uh, controversy about that here in New Zealand. <laughs> okay. Why do you think there's a sudden been a sudden rush of conflict of interest among politicians and government ministers in a fairly short time? Is this well, because we're looking more closely, or what's happening? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question, and yeah, maybe you have given the answer in terms of are we looking more closely? Um, I think. I think there are two big factors in why things, why we're having these uh, changes. So one is, as you say, there's a bit more sensitivity about it. People, I think, are a bit more conscious now that they've lost that complacency. Um, and New Zealanders are now a bit more, um, yeah, aware. And the media is looking for it a bit more. And so these latest controversies with Stuart Nash and Michael Wood, you know, they come after some other big ones in the last few years with um, the New Zealand First Party and their donors, um, donations from um, Chinese businessmen to both Labour and the National Parties that ended up in the High Court uh, last year, uh, or is it this year? Um, we've seen, um, yeah, numerous donations, controversies under the last national government. So it's all been kind of increasing. And I think it's, yeah, a big part of the reason that it's increasing is that um, suddenly people want to shine a lot more sunlight um, behind the curtain and see what's really going on. And once they're doing that, they're finding that there's lots of dirtiness going on. But I think there is also another answer. And this is one that's a bit more contentious and um, I, I guess it's, it's my theory, but um, politics has changed a lot in the way that it's carried out. Uh, you know, New Zealand political parties are quite different in how they operate to what, how they used to operate in the 20th century. Uh, we used to have mass membership parties. Uh, we had Labour and National, um, used to have 10 times the membership of what they have now. So back in the 1950s, 60s in particular, um, one in four um, members of the public were members of a political party. Sorry, one in four voters were a member of political parties. And parties generally raised their money from uh, their membership who were activists, who were you know running the cake stalls and fundraising in lots of different ways. Um, whereas we don't have those activists anymore. I mean, those activists also ran the party and carried out all the campaigning um they you know had uh, they were involved kind of organically in civil society and so when labor party wanted to get a message out about their policy on tax or whatever it would be the members and activists that would go out knocking on doors and holding meetings and that was a big way of getting these things out Whereas now they don't have those activists and meet and you know members to do that so they have to have professionals um, part, politics has become professionalised. The parties rely on ad agencies, PR, polling, um, smart comms people, you know, that have come over from the media industry and the lobbying industry. And this is very expensive. Um, so parties need much more money than they used to get. And so they need to raise that from wealthy individuals because they don't have, or Labour doesn't have trade unions to rely on for lots of funding. Um, National doesn't have its big membership base that it used to have. So they just go to um, wealthy individuals and try to, you know, put their their hat out for those things. But also 
in terms of politicians themselves, I do suspect that they aren't as ethical as they used to be. So I, I do believe that standards have gone down. And this is a bit harder to prove, so I accept it's more speculation on my part, Marvin. But in the past, like in the 20th century, most people that came into politics, um, as in into parliament, did so after long careers as teachers or farmers or or whatever. Or boilermakers in the case of Norman Kirk. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of working class people went into politics, and they did so as a sense of duty. They, they you know, had something they wanted to contribute and they wanted to change the world or in the part of national, maybe stay, keep it the same or whatever. Um, and you know, service to the community was a big motivating factor. Whereas now we have politicians that are increasingly career politicians. They go into politics at a much earlier age without having any kind of um, real organic sort of links to the community. They often, you know, go through student politics and then go into, I don't know, either media or lobbying or PR or journalism or even working in parliament for other, for parties. And so those things are just stepping stones to then having a political career. And so they're in politics because that's their job. You know, that's how they're going to raise their money. And of course, politics is paid extremely well now. Uh, In the past, we had MPs paid in the 1970s, for example, at a similar rate to, say, a teacher, whereas now they're paid sort of two or three times as much. And the prime minister has paid nearly half a million dollars each year. Uh, Cabinet ministers, about a quarter of a million dollars. And MPs, um, nearly 200,000, once you take into account their their perks and so forth. And they want to be in politics for a long time. um, And so it's about remuneration is a big part of their factor, factor in what they're doing. And... In general, I think they aren't so much guided by public service. They are guided by their own self and what's the interest to the self. And so I think their moral kind of character is actually a bit lower and their incentives are uh, a bit more base than traditionally parties were. So that's my take on it. But I I accept that listeners, you know, might not agree and they might might have other reasons for thinking about why we are having um, more scandals in in our, amongst our our MPs. Okay, well, a piece of music now. He's a walking, talking lie in a banker's suit and tie Just a cowboy on the Lone Prairie He says he's your saddle pal Put your stock in his corral But he'll steal your horse before he takes his feet He's driving cattle in his sleep the herd's a half a million deep And the trail ahead is as pretty as you please But to the stockyards they will go For their final rodeo While the campfire smoke blows softly through the trees It's time to get along Sets on the trail, and you hear that closing bell. You can still pretend that you're a friend of mine. Yo, the leo, the leo, the leo.
paper hits the floor Come winter time with clothes and prime Won't matter anymore And now it's hard times trading down On the jobs that left this town When the stampede come and the banks They all went bust where did all that money go? Well, I guess we'll never know. We trust in God when we put it all in trust. Now it's time to get along, little doggies, and move that rounder's money up the line. When the sun sets on the trail And you hear that closing bell You can still pretend that you're a friend of mine You can still pretend that you're a friend of mine Yodaleo, yodaleo, This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Well, that was um, When the Sun Sets on the Trail from the Stone Soup Sessions by John Ingness. And you can podcast this a program by going to oar.org.nz then going to podcast and going to Community or Chaos. And we're talking with Bryce Edwards about conflicts of interest in... Uh, the public spheres, particularly politicians. Should <coughs> we be concerned about conflict of interest in public service and other government or quasi-government commissions and organizations? Yes, Marvin, I, I, I do believe we should be. And of course, one of the, the big examples of this uh, in the last couple of weeks is Ming Foon, the race relations conciliator who has resigned last week and or resigned a week ago uh, or so. Um, and he resigned because he was found to, to have not been clear enough in, his, um, in expressing his conflicts of interest when he was race relations conciliator and he was involved in the inquiry on emergency housing because it turned out that he um, owned a company, part owned a company that was involved in providing emergency accommodation um, to the government and the government had paid his company over $2 million and he had not declared that during this inquiry that he was a big part of. Uh, Prior to that, there was also a controversy with him in that he'd been found to have donated um, money to politicians. And one of those politicians was the now Minister of Justice, Kerry Allen. Um, I think he and his wife had given her over $10,000 for her election campaign. And then, of course, she becomes his boss. Um, She's responsible for uh, the Human Rights Commission. And so some people thought that that's a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe Ming Foon has been unlucky in a sense because this happens probably across the public service and lots of government agencies mm. um, and journalists are just starting to dig up about this now and he was probably an mm. unlucky you know, first person to be discovered to have these conflicts of interest. Three Waters but, had that to some degree. Sorry, who? Three Waters. Yes, of course. Um, We are seeing lots of different people involved in developing the policies of the government who are close to the government, paid by the government. And, yeah, it's all a bit um, questionable or or dodgy. So I I think it's the public service that needs a a lot more of the spotlight at the moment to make sure there's proper rules, because as far as I can see, there's not... And sometimes there are some rules, but then they're just kind of tick, tick box exercises, and they're not really uh, properly enforced. Those rules. What do you think if you're a minister and you've, you're building something, and um, 
one of your uh, family members part of the people contributing to building whatever that is yeah so we, we live in a small country and um, you know it's an intimate country and of course there's always going to be politicians who have family members who are also involved in politics or public life or or the private sector and uh, you know it's um, it's often the case that these things are very innocent and that you can't really expect a politician's you know partner cousin or whoever to stop being involved in public life and not be able to get government contracts and so forth just because they are you know the minister's uh, husband etc but it does mean that we need much more kind of guardrails um, to make sure that you know we don't have corrupt or you know uh, uh, untoward practices going on so I think whenever there is uh, family members involved in these things then there does need to be more scrutiny there does need to be a lot more transparency and that hasn't always occurred um, and so I, I think for example you can look at the case of Nanaima Mahuta and her husband who's had lots of government contracts um, in the last few years and often it just hasn't really been clear um, the details of these things and it's been very hard for the public or journalists to get information on what's occurred and um, it hasn't always looked as if there's been enough separation um, between um, power and uh, the ability to give out these these contracts so I, I yeah that's another area that needs to have uh, some reform in my view what's the effect of money on New Zealand politics today and what has changed? I think we've covered all that to some extent because you talked well, about the political parties needing lots more money yeah, and, I mean, uh, a, and not having the uh, political population base be, because of prior policies to uh, have the large membership they used to have. Cause they yeah. Don't. I, th- I think oh, looking at the big picture... In any sort of, you know, capitalist society like ours that has so much inequality and so much wealth, um, we've got these big inequalities of, of, uh, of money and there's always going to be a temptation for those that have a lot of money um, and they've got, you know, so much money they don't know what to do with it, that they, but they want to, um, you know, get the rules changed or reinforced or whatever. There's always going to be a temptation for them to use those resources to uh, get their way. That's um, why people want money, isn't it? For power. I mean, people yes. don't. It, you couldn't spend all the millions of dollars that some people make just on exactly. Their- and so, democracy, you know, and how we do our politics, isn't supposed to be based on people that have the most resources getting more say than others. It's supposed to be, you know, intrinsically, politics and democracy is about one person, one vote, uh, one person having the same amount of influence in elections and public policy as anyone else. But, of course, resources make a big difference. And so if you go to any political party and say, you know, um, you know and give them the money, it helps that political party. Um and so it, it means we don't have a level playing field. And so when national get a lot more money than labor, as they do at the moment, um, it means that the, the people that support national are having more power on democracy than those that support labor. Um, of course, in the past, there's been times when labor have got much more money than national because they've appealed to business people more than national at times. Um, but Or likewise, it might be... Um, the Green Party getting more money than, say, top. I don't know. Um, but, you know, it just means that it's not one person, one vote. Um, it's not, you know, as simple as that anymore. And so we have to have rules to make sure that um, those inequalities of wealth aren't translating. And, you know, there's lots of different ways that um, the wealthy can do this. And so we know business associations lobby groups, you know, all sorts of sectoral groups can use their wealth to lobby in particular. 
politicians, uh, public servants, the political process um, to try and get their policies adopted. And so, yes, that's another way in which money is uh, potentially corrupting the political process. How does lobbying happen in New Zealand? Well, and who does it? Okay, who I mean, you have to remember lobby. with lob- lobbying is that you know the most basic definition of lobbying is when the public try to influence uh, the political process, and so you know everyone does it. Well, not yeah. everyone, but a but, lot of people do it. Well, usually so when, when we think of lobbying, we don't think of uh, I and my friend going up to the local. Dinning North and uh, trying to get them to improve their climate change policy. We think of that's right. We think of yeah. large organizations, sometimes yes. unions, but more often large corporations trying to influence policy. Uh, um, I think that's exactly right. Um, <clears throat> but I, I mean, it just is worth remembering though that lobbying in itself isn't intrinsically bad or wrong. It, it, it helps the political process. So, yeah, when you and I, um, you know, go on a protest march or whatever, you know, that's, that is a form of lobbying. And, you know, when we make submissions to select committees, that's lobbying. Um, so, and lobbying does help. So people should be involved in politics. Um, and, you know, uh, Business New Zealand should be involved in politics. Federated Farmers, the CTU should be putting their views. So intrinsically, I don't think there's anything wrong with with this at all. Um, But, of course, there's inequalities of lobbying and there's lobbying that's totally unregulated and occurs in a way that I think, uh, yeah, corrupts the political process. What about the Uh, circular effect of lobbying where people are members of government one year and then they join a lobby? Yeah, Uh, so we're talking now about... Um, professional lobby firms and business organisations, and the fact that yeah we have this uh, yeah like you say a revolving door um, that often means that um, politicians in particular or even public servants and officials um, go from one side of the political process from being the uh, the regulator or the policy maker and they go through the door and suddenly become lobbyists work for lobbying firms or whoever and. They take all their links or networks and knowledge of what how the beehive and politics works, and their friends, and they take all those things that they've you know accumulated while being paid by the taxpayer into the private sector, and they use that uh, that essentially that capital that they've built up to then make much more money and to help private interests um, have an advantage in the, um, the political process. So the obvious examples here, are, I mean, there's so many, but Chris Farfoy is the one that comes to mind. You know, um, he was a Labour MP and Cabinet Minister for many years. And then, um, and then uh, you know, a number of months ago, he decided, no, no, I don't no longer want to be a Cabinet Minister. I want to be a lobbyist. He left Parliament um, just, you know, really quickly because he was list MP and a few months later he was lobbying his his colleagues or potentially working as because he was working for a lobby firm he set up a new lobbying firm and so I think that shocked a lot of people because it showed just how um, how easy it is for that to happen whereas in other countries that would be illegal you know he'd be put in jail for that um, because you can't do that there's rules against it um, normally there's a stand down period so in most countries you know certainly just about every western developed country like New Zealand there's a stand down period where if you're Chris Farfoy and you leave cabinet um, you can't work in the private sector um, as a lobbyist you mean yeah as a lobbyist for a number of years, um, you know, some some places it's five years um, because it's seen that you would have a, um, a, a an advantage over other people and that you might, uh, yeah. Um, Shouldn't be it to, be at least three so you wouldn't necessarily be, have the same people in cabinet yeah. and in government when you started your lobbying? Yeah, I mean, uh, we can't have a, a stand-down period forever, so, you know, um, people have to get other jobs. Um, but, yeah, three years seems like a reasonable period to me. Um, 
but yes, I think anything would be better than our current situation where there's just no rules at all. And it goes the other way as well. So it means that people that work as lobbyists um, can go into um, politics. And so, for example, the current chief of staff for the in the Beehive uh, for the Prime Minister, the, the, you know, this is the right hand man for Chris Hipkins. Um, oh, geez, I suddenly forget his name. Um, um, is a lobbyist. He was a lobbyist for many years and he quit his lobbying job to run the beehive for uh, Chris Hipkins. So he's a lobbyist one week and then the next week he was um, on the top floor of the beehive running things. And of course, you know, there's all sorts of potential conflicts of interest. We don't know how well those things are, are managed. And there's a real history um, of lobbyists going in and um, getting jobs in the beehive um, creating lots of networks, friends, and then, of course, leaving and going back to lobbying. And so they become very valuable to um, the private sector who then have uh, an in with all the politicians. And it means these lobbyists can just ring up um, their their mates in the beehive and say, oh, can we change this policy? You know, have you thought about this? And, and so forth. And ordinary citizens can't do that, you know, um, whereas lobbyists um, have that power because they've been given access to the beehive. The public service has changed a lot itself, hasn't it? I mean, yeah. after the 80s, it's, uh, for instance, it's directly responsible to ministers, not, not to the public. You, it's not as long, and you have a lot more contracting out, which some people say... Uh, takes away the influence of public service, it cuts out their institutional knowledge, and it's very, very expensive. It costs a lot more to contract out than to have a public service person do the work. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Marvin. <clears throat> I mean, obviously the origins of this change were again, as we were talking about before, the 1980s, um, and so we had these new public management reforms whereby the fourth Labour government tried to make the public service more like the private sector. And they brought in lots of uh, business practices to the uh, government departments and tried to make them operate more like um, businesses. And they tried to get the private sector to do more of the government's work. And so contracting out, like you mentioned, is a big part of that. And so instead of relying on public servants to, to deliver everything, they would um, yeah, try and get private sector in. in. And so it's, oh, there's just so many examples of this, but you know, um, I, I guess we got to the, the height of that under the last national government when you had prison, prison services run by private uh, companies. And so Serco started to run private, private prisons. And you know, there was talk of what else we could do, what else could the welfare state or the bureaucracy um, just pay the private sector to do you know could we get them to do um more of the military or the police or you know housing or whatever and as we've seen some of this does happen so it does create conflicts of interest it does create lots of problems when you no longer have a, a public service that is um kind of along traditional lines um that is all about <clears throat> serving yeah, public the public <laughs> yeah Do um, how much does it cost to run a political um, campaign for parliament these days compared to what it, what it used to cost? Well, well, how much do people spend? Is a better better question. Yeah, um, it's quite hard to answer that question. Um, firstly, because we just don't know. Um, the political parties are very secretive about their their resources and money. Um, they do have to declare after each election how much they spent in the campaign period on advertising, but that's just one element of their costs. Um, certainly the governments, are, sorry, not governments, the political parties, the big ones are spending, yeah, a, a few million dollars in each uh, election year. Uh, they're also spending large amounts of money during um, non-election years as well. Um, minor parties tend to spend a lot less, especially maybe the you know the Greens, New Zealand First, etc. 
But even those are, are quite well funded. Um, but I, I think there's a bit of a myth in politics that you do necessarily need a huge amount of money to run um, elections. I mean, it helps. You always want to have more money if you're a political party. But I think what's most important for a political party is to have some good policies, some activists, and some sort of connection with society. So if you look at something like the, the Māori Party, to Party Māori, I don't think they have huge budgets in running their campaigns, but they have uh, a, a kind of organic connection with their voter base that um, they use. If you look at, um, I don't know, if you go back to the 1990s, you'll remember this, Marvin, and the Alliance. The Alliance actually didn't have that huge amount of money. We didn't have any money. Huh. Yeah. And so the Alliance, for example, in 1993, um, I can't remember. I've seen the figures for how much they spent. It was a small amount. And they got 18% of the vote in that 1993. This was the the last elect, last first-past-the-post election before MMP. And they got 18% of the vote. And they did it on the basis of kind of big movement campaigns and so they had lots of activists and they had some policies that really resonated with people um, and that was the secret to their success and um, we've seen other parties you know do relatively well on small amounts of money so I think we we get to a bit obsessed about all parties get a bit obsessed about that they need more and more money what they need is more and more um, good ideas and activists and a connection with society so and often the more money you get uh, the the worse parties do so even with that example of the alliance after 1993 you know the alliance started to get into parliament and big bigger numbers they actually started getting a lot more donations they suddenly had resources from parliament and they became a much more well-resourced party, but every election subsequently, they received a much lower amount of the vote. And so sometimes it seems the more resources, more money you have, the more professionalised you are, um, you kind of lose your soul. You lose your connection with, uh, with members and, and voters, and that can be kind of counterproductive, I think. If politicians and political parties think they need the money, doesn't that make them vulnerable to people who are able to donate large sums of money? If, oh, if, abs- you, have the, abs- if you have yeah. the feeling as a leader of a political party or just somebody, say, who's involved with the operational uh, part of a political party and you think you need more money to do well in elections, does that leave you vulnerable to people who are able to give you that more money that oh, you think look, you need? Abs- absolutely. Absolutely. And um, in the past, um, I mean, you've mentioned the operational side. And in the past, it, it was done in a more, uh, um, I don't know, uh, ethical way, I think. So in the past, you had the party presidents and the party organizations that would try and raise the money. And so if you think back again, to use those examples of the Labour Party uh, and the, you know, when Jim Anderson was president, he would go out and raise the money. It wasn't the prime minister, it wasn't the, um, it wasn't the leader of the political party. And then, of course, David Longy took over and Roger Douglas, and they started to go out to business and raise the money themselves. And that was suddenly a change in how parties operated. And so now, yes, you have... Uh, Christopher Luxon will go out and try to you know, talk to business. Well, he's done quite he, well with that, hasn't he? Yes, he, and he has. And mm-hmm. Chris Hipkins will be doing the same. And other Labour MPs and Green MPs will be going out to business, you know, cap in hand, to ask for money. And I don't think it's appropriate. It should be the party organisation that goes there. That And the politicians shouldn't know anything about um, mm-hmm. who's given the money. Uh, it should, should be kept separate. It should be something of a Chinese war. Should we change it? Should the whole thing be considered change? Should we actually uh, run? Should the government make sure that parties have enough to run a decent campaign, but then clamp down very strongly on donations? Yeah, look, there's so many different ways that we could reform uh, politics. And the idea of state funding is, is one suggestion that maybe we just suggest, we just accept that politics costs money parties are part of the democratic process so the taxpayer should 
should fund them. Uh, it's an important thing. And there are ways that we could, um, yeah, calculate and give money to the parties so they don't have to go to the wealthy in society. I think we, I th I think we should be open to that idea, but I also think we should be a bit skeptical about it as well, because there are some problems how this operates overseas. Sometimes it does produce more corruption. Sometimes it does mean that um, it, it distances the parties from civil society even more. They no longer have to have activists, members. They then just get reliant on state funding, and they kind of become a almost like a government department uh, where they don't have links to society anymore. And what's more, it when it's done, it tends to um, first give the parties a lot more power um, and sort of a sort of an incumbency protection. So no new parties can <clears throat> develop because most of the bulk of the money will go to the main parties like Labour and National. Um, the minor parties will get a scrap of the funding, but anything outside of Parliament, no, you won't be, you won't qualify. Um, and so it's hard for new left wing or right wing parties to develop um, because they're up against the the parties that have all the money. Um, but also, it tends the money tends to go to the leaders of the parties. So it means that you know the people that are in charge, David Seymour, Christopher Luxon, are the the ones that dominate the party because they have all the money whereas um and that can be a problem and it means that you don't have any independent um mps that can rebel against the party okay well thanks a lot for that um bryce and really good discussion a lot to think about and yes. um, consider and okay thanks Barbin. necessary solutions but no easy solutions exactly Okay, thanks, Bob. Thank you. Cheers. See you again. Okay, see you again sometime. Thanks. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.